as product people, a lot of the work that we do involves changing the way teams do their work. And we need to have a systematic approach to do that effectively. Now, in this episode, I talk with Scott Baldwin on how product relates to change and his 5P framework for change management, which actually was recently published on Mirror as well. Now, Scott is a product management leader and longtime member of the Vancouver product community with a deep interest in helping others find their opportunity in product management. He is currently at Product Board, leading their product excellence practice. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Sleeman, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Scott, welcome to PM Hub. Thanks for having me. Awesome, for sure. Now, I'm really excited to talk about today's topic on the five P's of effective change management with you. But, you know, um, product is such an interesting field that you all have different journeys into it. I'm curious to know what was your journey into product? Well, I was fortunate, I guess you could say in some ways that I got a chance to participate in product um, and kind of show up, I guess, in the space overall. Um, You know, one of the nice things, I guess, is that I started very early on in product at a time when product wasn't quite as busy and quite as, I guess, populated and exciting as it is today. Um, Mm. And I, and I think, you know, increasingly it's really important just for people to, to get these opportunities and, and it's really hard today in some cases for people to find their path in a product. So for me, my first role was back in uh, the late nineties. I worked for a company called Blue Zone Entertainment that uh, was one of the sort of an early stage uh, .com company that uh, built out some convergence platforms for for broadcasters here in Canada. Um, That gave me an opportunity to start dabbling into product management. Um, And, you know, my next role I fell into is kind of in banking after that, just kind of before the .com blow up. Um, and I've had really a lot of chances here to work in a lot of different sectors and roles, kind of bouncing between user experience and product for a little while, and then really getting into you know the opportunities that I've got today, uh, working as a product consultant here at uh, Product Board. Okay, very very interesting. And you're right. I mean, getting a chance, even you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I, I ask this question from all my guests, and more often than not, I'd say eight out of ten they say it was I just you know someone just you know uh took a chance on me right so yeah yeah, like like a lot of people stumble into this career in a funny way um they come at it from lots of different angles i think there's you know i think that the big thing was i think for me was there wasn't i guess education programs or weren't the numerous resources we all kind of take for granted today when i entered product um and you know unfortunately you know today i think a lot of people have a lot of things at their disposal to really understand both the space and the sector and, and, and opportunities to more, more opportunities, in a lot of ways to get into product. Yep. Stuff like this podcast too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So you said you have product board right now. What do you do there? I'm curious. So I work uh, at product board in a role we call a product excellence consultant. I'm really the only one of these right now. Uh, we're going to be expanding that team, I think slowly, you know, as we kind of go and grow with it, but really I help, our kind of customers organizationally and strategically get value from product board. And what I mean from that often is uh, I might describe it as like the softer side of their, their product organization. That's actually stopping them not only from adopting a tool, but from being an effective product organization overall. So this is everything from, you know, best practices, uh, strategy around kind of our three, what we call our three pillars, which are around deep user insights, 
you know, really that sort of prioritization side of things and as well as roadmap, as well as everything like from change management to organizational design and lots of those kind of softer issues in product teams. Interestingly enough, a lot of my work, despite working at product board, is really kind of product agnostic. These are really things that all product team, product teams really actually need to be successful. Um, I was a longtime customer before joining product board, so I, I really love the product. I'm, you know, I love how it helps teams build great products together. And when I got a chance to join, I was really excited to do that. Yeah. No, that's pretty awesome. I remember I had a guest not too long ago, and then we talked about OKRs, and he's an OKR trainer, and he meant I mentioned, you know, what's the least understood about uh, what you do? And he said, people just think they can just, okay, put a frame, call it OKR, and they can just do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I love, I love Philippe's episode, actually. That was a great episode on this one. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, Scott, I'm, I'm curious to know, how, how do you define change management? Actually, why is it important? So I like to define change management as being, uh, I guess, a systematic approach that includes dealing with both the transition or transformation of organizational goals, core values, processes, or technologies. And like the focus of my work is on the organizational side, the processes and the technology generally are pretty well kind of known in a lot of cases. And change management is really important because change is a constant and really, frankly, inevitable today. Like we all work in you know, highly changing environments. Like, you know, the world is not going any slower. It seems to be, if anything, speeding up. And change is critical to businesses growing and evolving. And we need to be able to work through change successfully or really actually organizationally, we risk dying as organizations or as teams and, and not being successful in what we set out to do and where we need to go. Yeah, no, that's fair enough, totally. Now, how does, I'm curious, how does change management relate to product field and like, you know, to begin with, let's do that. Yeah, it's a bit, bit of a loaded question because I think change applies to so many roles. It's not just change management, but like each and every day, we as product managers deal with change. We have to manage change to our roadmaps. We have to manage how, you know, change how we're working. We have to change the projects that we're executing on or, or, or building or developing. And we, and we need to make changes to our things like our strategies and plans, as we recently saw with, with COVID. Um, you know, Nils Davis, he's a, you know, does the... Uh, all the responsibility uh, podcasts that's out there and, and certainly as a writer on the topic, a product manager likes to say that, you know, we have all the responsibility, none of the authority. So being able to navigate change too as PMs is really important as a skill. Um, you know, just to, I guess, give an example of this, like where this kind of shows up is you've got an organization, say, working a certain way today and maybe a team decides they want to go do something like go agile. And, and suddenly there's a whole lot of people impacted by that change. You know, somebody's responsible for product. There's people in other departments, engineers, QA people. Everyone's kind of, you know, suddenly starts struggling with all the communication around this. Before you know, there's kind of a bunch of misunderstandings. There's a bit of resistance in teams. Before you know it, like some of the teams are feeling like they're swimming, you know, kind of knee deep in quicksand. And all these people are struggling to kind of get aligned and, and, and move forward on things. And, and so being prepared for change helps you, you know, really work through those problems more effectively. It helps you um, ensure that you have a plan and you know how you're going to, you know, execute and, and, and move through stuff, but also give you a way to adapt and modify your plans as you learn new things and, and, and take new information in as you go. So, no, that's interesting. So uh, I'm curious to know, like, who should be involved in this whole process of change? So frankly, everybody should be involved in change. Um, change is about what, you know, what I like to describe in a lot of my materials about co-creation. 
There's those who are impacted by the change. They co-create and shape the plan about how to make the change happen. There's a really great uh, change management consultant here in Canada named Jill Forbes. I think she's based out of Winnipeg, if I remember correctly. And she likes to say that the people who write the plan don't fight the plan. And so you really need to be involving employees, customers, other stakeholders right out of the gate in the ideation of design and solutions. And it's a really powerful opportunity at the beginning of a change to ensure that the end state works for those who are going to have to inhabit it later. I like to think about this in three dimensions, typically, who's impacted, who's, who's going to lead, and who's going to be the first to implement. But there's lots of different ways, again, you might put a lens around that picture. Um, but this also really shifts to, a, you know, leads to a big shift for leaders. Um, you don't have to sell the change. You instead get buy-in early. You figure out how best to do it. And then you go on this sort of journey of change together. So, you know, really, again, come back to like who should be involved in change management team. It's really everybody. Mm. Yeah, I bet uh, there must be a few, uh, kind of a few of our listeners right now that are thinking, what are we talking about here? This is so different from what we're used to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Especially yeah, it's like, I think, I it was a product management podcast, not a change management podcast. Yeah, well, that and also like this approach of like, you know, especially that big orgs that say, you know, from my experience, like you have to plan out the whole thing all at once, all the roles defined and everything else and risk management in place. But then this approach that you're talking about, like, you know, take iteration on it and just take the agile approach. I think that's very, very cool. Yeah, exactly. And it, like, I think if you see today, like, you know, like, again, to use that analogy of like waterfall versus agile, these sort of waterfall processes came out, you know, people believe they knew everything right out of the gate. And then, of course, they got way partway into the process and realized yeah. that it wasn't really what they actually thought. And then, then they had to suddenly sort of adjust course and, you know, the, and keeping this sort of agile, keeping this flexible really allows, you know, more room for kind of experimentation, allows you to adjust courses you're going, account for new learnings, much like you do in agile software development. Um, and, you know, to be able to deliver the right thing in the right way, rather than, you know, trying to plan this all up front and hope we got all the right answers. Yeah. And I'm assuming, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's depending on the industry, I'm assuming it could apply to a lot of industries now to thinking, but let's say for mission critical setups, would you say you could still apply the same kind of iterative thinking when it comes to change? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, every organization is going to approach this differently. There's going to be certainly parts of your organization, maybe in a very large, say, enterprise organization that would that wants all that certainty in the world. But I think, you know, it's, it's maybe like biting off small chunks of that, finding the certainty that you can find out about and being successful with that maybe, but then also leaving lots of room maybe again for that iterative, agile, kind of like ever-changing, ever-learning kind of approach. Um, you know, there's... Uh, sort of a mindset of, I think you can go to, you know, almost any executive in any company and ask them if they could kind of predict the future. Um, and in a lot of cases, they can't. Um, and I, I think asking change teams to predict the future, asking change teams to understand exactly how things are going to roll out and, and, and not take into account that learning is actually a big mistake of change in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, at least my next question, Scott, like what, what do you think is actually there that makes change management difficult to implement? Well, I don't think it's the change is difficult to implement. I think it's how we approach it that creates the difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that, again, comes down to some of those old ways of thinking. You know, we see so many changes fail because people have taken a really top down approach around the change. They go away by themselves or sometimes as a group. You know, they bring up a bunch of things they're going to go and do, and then they tell everyone how it's going to work, literally kind of broadcasting the approach at them. 
and they basically engage stakeholders too late. So, you know, what do you naturally see is you see everyone pushing back on that plan. Um, you know, that, those sort of command and control patterns, um, you know, really result in just ultimately in the end resistance. Um, what they missed instead, you know, back to my earlier point was the, the sort of opportunity to co-create and engage and many people working together to solve a problem is always going to be smarter than just one person or even just, you know, one perspective essentially as part of that. So most change plans you'll find are like very waterfall, you know, in their approach. They're much like waterfall software development, right? Again, they don't allow for that experimentation. They don't allow for adjusting course. They don't account for new learnings. And they really lack the proof that value is delivered. Um, and, and so I think, you know, why is it difficult to implement? I think it's largely because of the approach we take on it in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. Now, while we're on the topic, Scott, like chain champions that, that I've been hearing a few times, do we need them on our uh, initiatives re related to change? And if we do, whose responsibility is it to, you know, take that role? Yeah, like I think a chain champion is still a really important piece. You know, I, I like to talk about this in the context, again, back to what I think what I mentioned earlier around the people side of this. Um, you're definitely going to have people that are going to be sort of like, you know, impacted by the change is going to be people who are going to kind of lead that change and kind of go, there's going to be people that are going to go first in it. And so having a change champion and like understanding who that person is, that's going to, you know, help us implement this, who's going to be your kind of go-to on it can be super helpful, but also having a change champion in terms of the team that's actually going to go and work through this for you and be some of your early advocates in the organization and demonstrate proof of that change actually happening in a positive way are also really important people to have. So definitely, uh, you know, having someone in that role can be a huge contribution to the success or failure of a project. Cool. Now, if you're looking out in the wild, uh, you know, what are some frameworks that's out there right now on change management, you know, what's working about them and what's not, you know, given your experience. Yeah, there's, uh, in, you know, no shortage of frameworks. The world really loves frameworks yeah. and the predictability they bring. And, and, you know, everybody loves a quick shortcut and a way to do this. And, uh, you know, I guess in some degree, you know, my ideas around this aren't much different, but, um, you know, just like product prioritization, there's lots of different frameworks out there for change. You know, there's, you know, uh, more popular sort of more formalized frameworks like Cotter's and Adcar and Lewin's, it's McKinsey's 7S, there's Theory E and O, you know, there's Prosky, there's many sort of like groups and, and organizations out there. And as far as, you know, what's working out with all of these, these can be really great foundations for a successful plan. But in a lot of cases, these sort of large top heavy kind of processes can be really challenging for some organizations to adopt depending on your needs. Um, they might be less accessible as well to non-change professionals. And they might give people the impression that they have to do a whole bunch of work actually to get going with a change. And for many change initiatives, we don't really need this kind of complexity. Like a lot of the things we're dealing with, particularly as product managers. Um, and we really would be better focusing our energies on starting together, making incremental change and learning from what we actually need to kind of learn from. Um, I do think, a, a, you know, a number of these, uh, you know, have a lot of similar principles and approaches around it, but they all approach it kind of slightly differently. Some put kind of more emphasis on different aspects of change, say crafting a vision versus mm -hmm. capturing the need or the requirement for a change. But overall, there's a lot of great history in thinking of all of these. So I wouldn't really kind of ignore them overall. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now let's head back to the show. 
Now, let's talk about your 5P approach, Scott. I'm curious to know if you can give us a bit of history on, like, you know, why did you come up with this uh, 5P approach? I'm curious. Yeah, so, I mean, we work with, again, a lot of interesting customers that are, you know, adopting and running into different change challenges along the way. And, you know, I I was kind of coming into this as a consultant, uh, having to kind of figure out some ways and some easy, simple methods that the teams could kind of take to begin to kind of thinking about their change approach overall. Um, and the approach I came up with, this, this 5Ps approach, mm-hmm. really reflects kind of the commonalities we see between many of these change frameworks. And it's really there to give people kind of a tool to think about the change. Um, so it really breaks down into kind of like five Ps that we describe as the purpose, mm-hmm. the people, the priorities, the process, and the proof. Um, and, and that's been a, a really helpful, I guess, framework <laughs> to, uh, to give people that sort of get them thinking about the different aspects of this without actually, again, getting kind of bogged down in the complexities of maybe be a more formal, uh, you know, change rigor or change process that's out there. I'm also curious to know, like, are these in order that we suggest uh, kind of listeners to use or how does it work? Uh, they, they, they're great working in order. Um, but you don't have to necessarily tackle these in order. You may not even have all the answers to all of these dimensions right off the start. Mm-hmm. Um, I use these more as like a prompt on kind of key cues, key key information that you need to be considering when you're actually thinking about a change. So as an example, to kind of ignore the purpose part of this would be a bit of a mistake um, because people wouldn't understand essentially why the change is happening. Um, yeah. To not involve people might mean that you won't be successful in this change and implementing it. To not be clear on the priorities and the way you're gonna go do this, um, you know, could cause you to lose momentum and actually move forward. And you know, not demonstrating the proof on this could result in uh, you know, people not buying into the change and not seeing value from the change that you're actually going and doing. Yeah, no, that's fair, yeah. So that's the, let's talk about purpose. What is it all about? Yeah, so there can be a lot of different reasons for change, uh, but regardless of the change, we need to both understand and be able to communicate to other people why this change is needed. And it's it's absolutely amazing, but it, it, you know, it sounds really simple, but um, you know, many people start a change without really understanding this foundational question. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we need to connect people to that that why behind the change. You know, this is important because purpose motivates and excites people, gets people aligned towards a common cause or goal or whatever it might be that you need to to move towards. And if people ultimately understand why the change is happening, they're also less likely to need kind of this tactical kind of guidance or babysitting day to day uh, through the change. Instead, what happens is we see this shift. It's really a pronounced shift where they instead begin to operate and make change decisions in the context of the why. So you actually begin kind of empowering other people. Um, which is, you know, super, super powerful. Um, You know, a a clear why also provides a lot of hope for people on the other end of this change, that the future state you're going towards will actually be kind of worth the pain of change uh, and that it's inspiring and actually motivating and worth them doing. Mm -hmm. Right on, right on. Very cool, very cool. Now, um, if you want to give us an example on this, how, how would that look like? Yeah, let me try to use an example. Let's say I wanted to get people sharing product feedback with my product team. You know, typical change plan somebody might do might be just like tell people to start sharing feedback. Um, And of course, the reaction you're going to get on this is, you know, a bunch of resistance. Like, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do with the feedback? Why do I need to give feedback? What value does me giving feedback to you do? Uh, What time is this going to take out of my busy day? 
Um, you know, instead, if you kind of step back and explain that why and explain, you know, the problem that's kind of happening or the context of it, uh, you know, example here, like might be today, the product team doesn't have really good sight lines into what's important to our customers. And we want to be more customer centric in our product choices. So, you know, we want to start collecting feedback that gives a lot more kind of context around it. Right. And with that context comes a lot less resistance. So, you know, ultimately, if you don't know the why, um, you know, and, and the stakeholders on the other side don't understand the why, what you're going to see is that that sort of that pushback, um, that, that sort of resistance on that side. Yeah. And actually, it reminds me of like, you know, a day to day job as a PM when you lead without authority is basically the reason that actually works is because you're giving the context to the people. So they're all they're kind of like the hope is that they would be, pers- you know, uh, persuaded to actually do it because they, you're giving them the context and the why and they want to be part of it. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Like, and the funny thing is, like, again, to kind of analogize it with product, like we the best products we build are the ones where we explain why we're building it. We give the context of like all the information that we learned, you know, that sort of market context. We understand the the value and why this is important to our customers because we've done our due diligence, we've done our research, you know, we've we've got that kind of information. People are much more inclined to kind of get on board and, and, and buy into that. Whereas if you just show up and say, hey team, we're building this feature, you know, immediately what you get is like pushback from the engineer and the designers going, why are we building this feature? Why not this feature over here? Or the company and the rest of the teams are going, why are you building that? Like, why is that important? Like, why, how did you choose that over other things? Um, so again, this, I think it has some practical analogies back to the roles we play as product managers in terms of how we approach change and, and this importance of a purpose and starting with the why. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, I mean, if you want to kind of frame it in a couple of questions that, you know, our listeners can take, like, what are some questions they can ask to make sure that they are conveying the purpose behind this change? Yeah, there's a, f- a few ones that I, I like to include in a lot of my materials. Like, you know, what's what's the vision for the change? Like, what does that sort of end state look like? Um, you know, another question you can ask is, is, is why you're making this change? Like, just a simple, like, it sounds, again, really funny and, and kind of simplistic, but it's, it's funny how many people can't answer that. Um, you know, why is the change important? Uh, what does success like look like? Um, you know, again, these are these are really important factors to kind of consider, but often it's the conversation that we skip at this very early stage of change that we haven't aligned even on this. And so sometimes you see this, uh, you know, breakdown in a team itself that hasn't talked amongst each other about the change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go to show up to, you know, a group of other teams and try to bring them along. And now they're already misaligned and they're, you know, everyone's heading in different directions. Or you sometimes see this again of just like from one team to another team or one team to many teams, um, you know, in terms of how it might break down or where or, or it might not be aligned. Yeah. And now that actually I'm thinking about it more is like when I think about it, a lot of the cases actually could give some clarity to, you know, let's say, myself as a PM, if I want to go and actually talk about this, if I ask myself, you know, these questions first, let's say, why am I making this change? My first answer is like probably very crude. But then as I dig deeper and like to take that kind of like, you know, uh, three to five wise approach, then yeah. it becomes like crystal clear, even for myself. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. So exactly. That's right. No, I love that. Cool. And like, does it matter like the way you communicate this? Let's say this why to different audience because they have different KPIs per se. Does it matter? Do you tailor it to each of them? Um, you know, I, I think you you can always tailor your communication to other 
people individually in different ways. But I think the core part of this is, you know, you should be probably pretty consistent and clear in your why um, and helping them understand that, um, you know, you might uh, reflect that information differently for each audience. Um, you know, that might come back a little bit maybe to our next section on sort of the people end of this. But, um, you know, generally speaking, again, I, I find having a good clear why will carry through in pretty much any team that you're working with. Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, let's jump to next P, people. Uh, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so, I mean, change always involves people um, and it always includes leading people who themselves must actually go and make a change. Um, so the big opportunity here really is to engage those who will be impacted by the change, you know, those who will lead the change and those who will implement the change uh, and kind of be involved in, you know, co-creating and working with you to make that change happen. So by involving people, we shift from selling the change to having a dialogue. So instead of broadcasting, we're actually kind of getting their buy-in and we're kind of overcoming this kind of resistance to change that we kind of see. And we really leverage, again, that like collective knowledge. Um, and that means ultimately for us that we, we create the best solution. I, I think the easiest way to think about this is to think of a past change that you had made at work. Um, you know, and, and reflecting back on that a little bit of like, did you involve other people in creating that change? Or did you instead tell them how it was all going to go down? Um, you know, if you're fortunate enough, you actually maybe did involve them and that's great. But it's surprising a lot of change kind of fails here because they actually don't go in, you know, grab those other people and participate and co-create in this and collaborate on that. And, and looking back, you know, you could probably reflect on the, some of this stuff and go like, what, what could I have done differently? And I bet a lot of those ones, when you're reflecting back on those, relate back to people. Like, I wish I had involved you know, such and such earlier, or I wish I had better managed so-and-so's expectations, or I wish I had, you know, involved this person at, you know, this key critical junction. Um, so I think those are, again, like the, the people piece is just a, such a key foundation in, in, in a good change program. Yeah. And I, I can assume, like you mentioned, like on, on the different levels of people are impacted by change. Let's say, let's take senior executives and the level of, I guess, authority that they have. I'm curious to know, how do you handle their objections as you go on, kind of like try to open that dialogue? Yeah, so for senior leaders, I mean, those that have objections, I find a ton of value in bringing them back to that, that why, the purpose of the change. You know, often their challenges, they may not understand the reason why the change is being made, or they're not aligned or bought into those early parts of the, the purpose. Um, so, you know, objectives here aren't about people at this point, but really a disconnect with the purpose. And, you know, ultimately us as product managers or us as, you know, change leaders in some kind of way, you know, have to apply a lot of sort of adaptive leadership here. You know, we have to anticipate needs, trends, and options in the people that we're dealing with. We need to kind of articulate those needs to build a collective understanding and support for action. We need to make sure that we're you know, being adaptable and being flexible and adjusting course again, based on the kind of the learnings that we have. And we need to be accountable and be transparent about the decisions that we're making throughout all of this. So again, a more, uh, you know, waterfall driven change process, as an example, one that's kind of top down, very formalized, very stuck, isn't really able to adapt through some of these situations too. So when you do run into senior leader objections, then, you know, maybe the actions you need to take are, you know, trying a couple new experiments, trying a slightly different path out to see if that gets you a better outcome, 
But maybe what you also need to do, as I mentioned, was bring them back to the why and the purpose and the reason for the change to help them understand why this activity is happening, what's in it for them, you know, what's uh, what's what, why ultimately it's important for them to be participating in it. Right on. Okay, cool. So, all right. So we talk about purpose, people. Next B is priority. This sounds really familiar. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So priorities is kind of interesting, but it's like, I mean, it's super meta with product management because of course in product management, we're always trying to deal with like, what are the priorities that we have? And, and, and we're always struggling obviously with the whole topic of prioritization. I mean, there's probably a million books and a million articles written on that topic out there, yeah. but you know, overall this really involves, you know, like bringing people into this. And this is pretty simple. It's really about bringing people together, making a list of all the options, like what are the things we could do and getting those ideas kind of out on the table. And then it's really around prioritizing those options and quickly deciding which ones we should do and when, whether that's like now, next, later, or whether we're gonna keep some of those, maybe not do them at all, we're not sure, or maybe we're gonna even abandon some of those ideas that we put together. Um, and this doesn't have to be like super hard. Like we do a really simple two by two in some of the work that we do that's kind of plotting cost and value. And we identify some of those that are most impactful. Um, and you can also look at this maybe in a context of like maybe like evidence and importance, right? It's a really fun group exercise. It's really fun to do that. And then you can plot these out really quickly on a quick like Kanban style board. So I mean, you can do this, whether you're doing this in Miro because we're all, none of us are in the office these days. Um, or you're doing this, you know, in, a, in an environment where you're more collaborative and get, get the post-it notes up on the wall. You know, it's really great on this side. And the key piece here is you don't have to worry about like making sure you got everything accurate, that you've got every little aspect and detail about all this. You can keep your plan agile and such, but it's to give you a little bit of indicative direction up front about where you're going to go and leave just enough space in your plan. So as you kind of move towards your purpose and your vision for that change and you gain new learnings, you can adapt on these priorities and certain new ones, take other ones out, um, but also use these things to kind of learn and adapt and, and gain new knowledge as you move through your change process. Mm. So it's like, it's a, it's a living kind of, uh, let's say board or something that you have all these changes and as you yeah. have gained more knowledge, then you kind of update it, okay. Yeah, again, to kind of analogize this back to like how we build product today, right? I mean, we don't sort of write all the user stories up front. We don't necessarily know all the details of what we need to deliver. We, we kind of basically do progressive discovery. We slowly make sure that we truly, you know, completely understand the problem that we're working through. We, uh, you know, take in new information as we go and we adjust our course to get to the best solution. And I think really this is again about like establishing some of that skeleton, that kind of framework around the change and the things and the priorities that you have, but also being adaptable enough to go and modify those as you're kind of going along. Right, right on, right on. Now, my next question is, you know, how do we make sure that we're not missing as we're going through this kind of process of like brainstorming and, uh, and the change backlog? How do we make sure we're not missing? an important piece of information, you know, what kind of questions we need to kind of answer to make sure that, you know, we're covering for it. Yeah. So, you know, on this side, I think the, again, the, the key piece here is missing an important piece of information in our change backlog. Like the idea that we know all those answers up front is kind of immature in a lot of ways. And so what we want to make sure here, you know, is I guess is, that we've got enough information to move forward with enough confidence that we understand what we need to do 
but also that we've left enough room for new learnings and new opportunities and for new data adaptations of the approach that we're going to go and take. So like questions we might answer here might be, you know, did we get everyone's point of view? Did we get everyone's perspective? Did we consider some of the different angles essentially that we might want to go and work on? Did we, you know, look at this with different lenses? So as an example, you know, did we prioritize this in some kind of way? Like, so for example, we might look at this at like a cost value side. So maybe we do those, you know, high value, low cost things first as an example, but maybe we want to look at this from a different structure. Maybe it's like, we want to look at this as like, which ones are going to be more impactful or disruptive. Um, whatever you do to kind of take a lens on this, it's about sort of getting again, these kind of first steps, baby steps, uh, and kind of ways you can start moving forward a little bit as a team. Mm. Cool. So, yep. So, so far, uh, we talked about purpose, people, uh, priority, and then the fourth one, process. What is it about? Yeah, so I like to say there's two truths. Um, the only way to understand how people or a company will respond to a change is to make a change. Mm. And the only way to know if the change you're making is the right change is to try it. I love it. Um, so you need a process that's kind of flexible enough and a lot of really change processes that you see out there are really heavy, right? They don't leave a lot of room for adaptation or the inclusion of kind of new learnings or new evidence as you go. And so the simple fact is we don't know everything off the start and we'll never know everything up front. So the right path forward really on a process side is, you know, to, to kind of give that a little bit of room, to give that a little bit of flexibility. Um, you know, the right path forward here can rarely be completely planned at the outset as you know, complex change almost always encounters unknown unknowns that require adaptation on the fly. And organizations have to move away from these fully baked change plans and instead adopt kind of a sense and adapt approach that leaves a bit of that room. And that really means getting comfortable with kind of experimentation, iteration, and most importantly, failure, which is really the life's blood of learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you kind of analogize this again, back to some things we've got in product management to kind of bring this back a little bit, you know, we've got this like build, measure, learn framework or learn, build, measure, depending on how people want to view that diagram in product. Um, but it, you know, it has a, it has an equivalent in change management. Um, you know, there's a guy uh, based out of Ottawa named Jason Little, uh, who developed a, a framework called lean change management. And his structure basically is like insights, options, experiments, um, which is, you know, basically, you know, coming up with a list of the things you're gonna do, making experimental change, driving from that new insights and new learnings, which then drive new options, which then drive new experiments. It's a really simple sort of flywheel, right? Mm -hmm. But it's it's about you know leaving that room in your process is a really key part, but also just thinking about the process and the way you wanna go about uh, move through this change. So think about a recent change that you made to something. You know, so as an example, did you know all the answers or did you learn something new as you progressed along the way? Like my guess is you probably learned something new along the way about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And our goal with this kind of iterative process approach is to take kind of small bite sized changes as small experiments, learn quickly, safely and inexpensively rather than how can we make sure this you know giant thing works end to end. Um, and then, you know, leave room inside this for you know, new uncertainty and new learnings to kind of enter and giving people kind of the opportunity to kind of adapt as you go inside that process. So again, I'll come back to kind of the top, like what is process? I think process is there to know how you're gonna work through something, how you're gonna get from A to B, 
But the simple fact is you don't know all the answers. And so you need to leave a little bit of room for new things to enter that process as you go and new learnings to enter. Oh, I love that. I love how you said, yeah, you have just enough, uh, let's say, structure there to kind of like, you know, uh, to make sure you're in the right direction. But then you don't need to figure out every single node per se, you know, uh, from like A to B, right? They can figure out ways as you go. As long exactly. As you're in the right direction. I see. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Awesome. And last P stands for proof, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is an exciting one. This is one of my favorite ones, actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what are we talking about here? So, you know, a, a lot of change happens, but we so seldom in change kind of share out the wins, losses, failures, and learnings along the way. And, you know, often where I see change teams fail is that they don't do this. Um, you know, they can do a ton here to create transparency. With that transparency comes opportunities to bring other people along in the change, which also creates opportunities to, you know, gain more excitement and more energy around the change that's happening. Um, and, you know, this this proof piece uh, really is a, a really critical ritual um, that's unfortunately surprisingly missed in a lot of places. There's a, you know, kind of a few things that I like to recommend to, to our customers and, and to people that I work with on this side. There's a great structure called Lean Coffee. If you haven't seen Lean Coffee before, it's it's really fantastic. Um, you can look it up on, on Google, obviously, like most of the things in life. But, um, you know, at the core of this, it's, it's really an unstructured conversation. Uh, the focus is on kind of like letting the attendees drive the agenda. And your job really as a facilitator there is to kind of listen, learn, and then bring some of those learnings in from that in as new experiments into your change process, new things that you're going to try out to potentially address some of those problems along the way and, and, and gain new things. What that does, obviously, is it brings people together um, and it gives them a vehicle and a place in which to express their concerns about the change as it's rolling out, but also gives you as a change team the sort of room to go and adapt and, and do new things. You know, retrospectives, we, we do retrospectives at the end of Agile Sprints today and a lot of product teams, but surprisingly, retrospectives don't show up lots in, in sort of uh, Agile change management. Um, so these are great opportunities, again, to identify new ideas and new experiments you could run, new things you could do as part of that overall change process that you're going to go and work through. Um, you know, talking about kind of progress and the metrics, like everyone loves to hear numbers. Like, uh, you know, I'll use a great example. I worked with a customer recently who was implementing a, a feedback, you know, kind of change process. And, and one of the things they just got up and talked about at one of their quarterly sessions was how many customer insights or customer feedback items essentially they got and how much value the team derived from that in the context of their prioritization and decision-making about what they're gonna build for the coming quarter. Like just telling that story, um, you know, helps bring people along Helps get people excited, helps people understand, you know, the the why what you were asking for was important. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it ties all this kind of piece together really in a lot of ways. The the last piece I kind of touch on here is is like it's it's about visibility. And and you know, the more things you can make something visible around a change, the less people can kind of largely ignore it. The more people tend to be, you know, moved from being sort of uh, resistors into becoming kind of advocates. Um, and so, you know, lots of things you can do on the visibility side. You can, you know, make games of this. You can, you know, make challenges, give away a trophy, you know, do, do goofy things and have a little bit of fun with it. 
but also just, you know, creating that visibility, being able to tell more stories about it along the way gets helps people really understand the the value proposition back to that that kind of core why and the and the reasons for this. So so proofs are really important piece. Um, it, you know, it often doesn't show up and stuff. You know, if again to kind of analogize this with product, right? When you know, if we just go and build a product, deliver a product, but we don't tell people like how the product worked out in the end. You know, did people buy it? Did we get the number of signups we thought? Did we, you know, drive the business outcomes that we hoped for? We don't sort of talk about that as product teams. Our product changes kind of fall flat. Um, you know, people aren't super excited about that. So it's no different here in, in change management. We just need to make sure that we we help people understand like why this thing was actually important and, and why things happened. No, I love that. Thanks for sharing all these uh, framework per se, or let's say examples of different approaches. Yeah, no problem. Uh, now, one classic uh, here, Scott, is, and that comes from visibility, is like, you know, finger pointing, right? How do, how do we share with, how do we deal with that when you're sharing like failures? Yeah, so, and we all fail. Um, and I, I think the most important thing we can do in failure is finding opportunities to celebrate it. I think we can avoid a lot of finger pointing as well by not focusing on who, but the why. Like, why did this problem, why did this change fail? Like what was occurring in it? And I think coming back to some of those early things I talked about of like remaining flexible, doing things like retrospectives, having conversations as you go along, give you a little bit of the ability to adapt on this. And I think in some cases, finger pointing happens because we don't adapt our change plans. You know, we go in with a particular direction of how we're gonna go and do something. We marshal right through that from beginning to end. We don't adapt based on new information. And then at the end, we end up either flukingly successful or on the opposite side, everyone pointing fingers at each other because we we failed miserably. We fell apart as a group or a team uh, or we didn't deliver what we had hoped to. So I think you can you know, focus on how you can avoid failure again and some also the positive measures you could try around this. But I think it's also about, you know, uh, again, remaining adaptable um, and remaining flexible in, in the process that you take so that you don't have to end up at that stage at the end of a project. Yeah. And actually going back to your earlier points, you know, if you're involving the people to be part of the process, they kind of take the ownership of it. So I kind of feel like it automatically might reduce the odds of them wanting to finger point because they they like, hey, we all came up with this plan kind of set up together. So uh, if you're part of that, I, th I think it's less likely that you want to also, you know, be like, you know. I was part of it, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so so that's, that's cool, awesome. So Scott, where can our listeners hear from you? Um, well, you can find me on, on Twitter. Um, I'm at Benry, that's B-E-N-R-Y. Um, you'll find me there, a nice short Twitter handle, which is great. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn and, and often I'll contribute as well on our product board blog and to some of the great resources that we have at product board. So um, those are probably the best places. Um, and then maybe, I don't know, future times, maybe another podcast like this one. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the five P's of effective change management. No problem. Thanks for having me, Cyrus. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show and uh, feel free to share it with your network on your LinkedIn social media. Leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, please send them to me, Cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, Scott has published uh, this uh, kind of 5P framework that he has on, on Miro. You can find it uh, on the website. 
uh, if it's not published yet definitely it's going to be up soon and in the meantime you can just reach out to scott directly to get more details on it uh now you can get all the tips and action items for this episode for free at this bit.ly link that i'm going to give you it's bit.ly forward slash pmhub20 also subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any uh, of the upcoming episodes I'm Cyrus Slayman, and until next show, stay safe and healthy.